So uh, welcome back to the show. It's me, Hugh Sanders, here. And Pork is uh, just going to hang on here while we uh, speak with Paul Levinson, who is on the Skype uh, from White Plains, New York. And Paul, um, great to have you on the show. Really looking forward to having a, a good McLuhan conversation here. And I don't want to. I don't want this to be McLuhan one hundred and one. I, I let's get deep with this McLuhan stuff. And what is that? Your your latest book is about uh, social media and uh, kind of looking at it from a McLuhan point of view. Is that accurate? Yeah, it is accurate. I, you know, my main book about McLuhan uh, is entitled Digital McLuhan. That was uh, first published in 1999, and I, I wrote a lot of it in 1998. And obviously the Internet uh, of those days is is no longer with us. Uh, the advent of social media, you know, Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, Snapchat, all those good things. Uh, have really changed the landscape. And so I thought uh, the time was ripe and right for uh, mm. an application of some of McLuhan's thinking to those developments. And and then just to make life even more interesting, I realized at some point that Hillary Clinton and, and Donald Trump, each in their own very different ways, are quintessentially cool candidates in the McLuhan-esque sense. So once I realized that, I, I wrote this essay, and um, the book is actually, you know, I call it a book because it's available on Amazon Kindle as a book. In terms of its length, it's just about a 6,000-word essay, so in effect, it's really a new ch chapter in digital McLuhan. You know, I just want to uh, touch on that. Uh, you know, I'm just going to, you know, some people might not understand what that means, cool candidates versus a hot candidate. Um, uh -huh. The classic example, which I've seen you give before, is that in the 1960 presidential debate between Nixon and Kennedy, Kennedy was cooler. He looked better on TV. Nixon did better if you only listened to the debate on radio. But Kennedy won because he was cooler. And it would seem to me that, I mean, hey, we're so cool now. Everybody has to be so cool because, really, because if you're hot on TV, you're not going to succeed like Nixon didn't in 1960, Paul. So, like, everybody's cool now, right? Well, yes and no. I mean, for example, Bernie Sanders uh, isn't that cool. I mean, he's a nice enough guy, and a lot of people find his uh, positions very attractive. But basically, he's highly explicit. He hammers on about basically one or two things, you know, that super PACs in the United States and corporate financing are killing elections, and we have to do something about that. You know, in, in contrast, Hillary is much more multidimensional. Donald Trump, though, is especially interesting because you might think on first glance that he's a hot candidate, you know, with all his bombastic nonsense and insulting people, but he really has almost zero content. Uh, in his presentations. If you want to know what he stands for, like you asked Trump, well, who are you consulting about foreign policy? What are your views? And he says, I consult myself. And his opinion about just about anything is, I'm going to make America great again. Okay? Okay? That's basically the extent of, of his analysis. So in, in, in many ways, ironically, he is the coolest candidate in a McLuhan S sense uh, in this uh, U.S. Uh, campaign because he has no positions, no content, and so people are filling in 
or at least many people are, filling in the gaps with what they want to happen in the United States, not recognizing that Trump himself doesn't have a clue about how to get things done. You know, it reminds me, I think I... I think I was uh, chatting with Eric McLuhan once, and I think he sort of made a reference to or that he and his dad sort of were uh, not necessarily very optimistic about the future, um, partly because, I mean, and you've, you've just described a situation there where, you know, the coolest candidate is the one that has no content, who has no positions, has no platform even. Right. I mean, what you know, right. how, how are we supposed to um, manage our society when, uh, you know, when the coolest person who has no actual ideas is the one that's going to win the election? <laughs> well, that, that's a good question. And, and here is where I differ from McLuhan to some extent. The, the whole hot and cool analysis and a, a, a lot of McLuhan's analysis, the medium is the message, light mm-hmm. on versus light through, really is talking about something that's other than rational in human beings. In other words, how people respond in a sensory way to the stimuli that the media present to us. But I think, and I've believed all along, and in fact, I even discussed this with Marshall himself a, a few times, that uh, human beings also have a very strong rational component. Uh, you know, on this score, I'm with uh, John Milton and Thomas Jefferson uh, and their view that given enough information, and regardless of all these hot and cool issues, which are very important, but given enough information and enough time, people, by and large, do have the capacity to separate truth from falsity and sense from nonsense. And so I think because of that, uh, there is some hope for us. And, uh, you know, I don't know how pessimistic Marshall was. Eric is incredibly pessimistic. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) Marshall himself, you know, uh, I'll put it to you this way. Anyone with the sense of humor that Marshall McLuhan had, uh, you can't just describe him as a pessimist. He had a joie de vivre, uh, a sparkle in his eye, which I've never seen in anybody else in my life, and uh, that's certainly not pessimistic. Okay, I'm going to ask you a question, and I want to get back to some of that other stuff, but just talking about Marshall McLuhan there for a sec, and uh, because I've always been curious, and I don't know, maybe you don't have any insight into this, or maybe you do, but either the fact that, uh, that he converted to Catholicism, you know, in his later years, I mean, did that have anything to do with his media theories, or do you have any insight as to why he did that? Well, it did have a lot to do with his uh, media theories, because what uh, was clear to Marshall is that Roman Catholicism was able to communicate to people uh, in a way that uh, whatever the sect of Protestantism that he... he, he, Maybe what we can do... Paul, we sort of lost you there. Probably the most profound answer anyone on the show has ever given. And uh, I'm sorry, I didn't hear a word you said. I I know, we kind of lost you there, Paul. All right. Uh, 
I, I think it, I, if actually what you started saying there reminded me of I think a quote that just that uh, he said that Martin Luther had all the benefits of uh, Catholic. He's not there. He's, He's not there. Yeah. I, I, it, oh, that's disappeared on me. But um, that's okay. Let's just go with audio because I think yeah. that'll uh, be better from a conversational point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Didn't he say that uh, Martin Luther had all the benefits of Catholic intellectual tradition, but none of his followers did? Something like that. Uh, no, I was actually talking about Marshall McLuhan, not Martin Luther. <laughs> but, no, but McLuhan was saying that about Martin Luther. Yes, yes, yes. Right. I think that McLuhan, Marshall McLuhan, was always interested in getting to the to the deepest level of human understanding. And and here again, you know, when he says the medium is the message, and and when he's talking about hot and cooled, just even the hot and cooled distinction, the, the cool is a much deeper environment because it evokes much more participation and uh, you know reaches deeper in, into the human being, and I think that's what appealed to Marshall about Roman Catholicism. Um, but what I was also going to say, you know, an, a, another difference between um, Marshall and me, I am, I'm actually Jewish, uh, uh, but I'm not very devout at all. Uh, and uh, I, I find religions interesting and significant in a cultural sense. Uh, but as far as what they can teach us about what the universe and the world is really about, uh, I haven't really found any religion that I found as uh, satisfying as I would like it to be in terms of providing some kind of depth and answer. Um, you know, I, 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 it seems to me that there are three kinds of people uh, in the world. There are some people who, when faced with the complexity of life and the universe, what are we doing here? What does it mean to be alive? Uh, how did human intelligence arise as we evolved from great apes into human beings? How did life itself emerge on Earth? You know, science hasn't provided really satisfying answers for that. Uh, how did the universe itself begin? You know, the Big Bang doesn't explain what happened before the Big Bang, what caused the Big Bang. So some people say, you know what, I can't deal with this at all. That's group one. Then another group of people find a religion that gives them some sustenance and gives them some answers. And I think that uh, Marshall was in the second group, and he found Roman Catholicism, and it gave him an enormous amount of uh, strength and, in his view, insight into some of these fundamental, profoundly uh, difficult questions. But then there's a third group of people who sort of keep the wound open. You know, they, they recognize the issues. Uh, but they don't see really any religion as giving them uh, anything close to a satisfying answer. So I've always been in that third group. And, uh, yeah, I wouldn't say I'm an atheist. I guess I'm closer to an agnostic or maybe a deist. I don't know. Uh, But Marshall, you know, found Roman Catholicism, the dogma of Roman Catholicism, to be incredibly sustaining in an intellectual and spiritual sense. Okay, so let's get back to the the whole um, the thing about social media and, and and maybe some of the ideas in in your latest book because of course the one thing McLuhan for sure was saying was that uh, our media environments mold 
us as people, how we think, how we act, how we relate to the world. And this social media phenomenon is is pretty new. Um, what are your co- comments on uh, on how that has changed us as uh, as human beings? Well, in in many many ways, one of the things uh, that uh, first of all, as far as social media are concerned, uh, that has changed us uh, greatly is intrinsic in all of our communications is the impulse to communicate when we want to, to whom we want to, wherever we or they may be. Uh, This is like the synapse between thought and communication. And, And we want that synapse to be instant. And what social media clearly have done is they've come the closest in human history to giving us that instant synapse between the thought and the communication, regardless of where we and the people we're communicating to might happen to be. So, you know, that's about as profound as as you uh, can get. Uh, And McLuhan's work is very interesting because you can... uh, analyze and uh, in many ways put into better context just about every social medium, however trivial, however important, in terms of what McLuhan was talking about in the 50s and 60s about media that weren't social media, that were primarily mass media. To give you just one example that I talk about in my book, McLuhan in an Age of Social Media, if you think about what Snapchat is, Snapchat is a a relatively new and highly successful social medium, which has this as its defining characteristic. You upload a photograph or an image, and it doesn't last beyond the person who's seeing it, or if you want to make it public, if it is put on the screen and it's there for a, a very brief period of time and then disappears. Now, this is really, in many ways, a wild development because it goes contrary to why photography was invented in the first place, which was, which was to provide an image that was a lasting image. The whole point of mm-hmm. photography is to have an enduring record of something that we're looking at. But obviously, uh, in today's day and age, people don't want enduring records. You know, I mean, some of this could be, you know sexual, some of it it could have to do with anything that you want somebody else to see, that you're seeing, or maybe something about you, but you don't want a permanent record of this. So, McLuhan, uh, as you may recall, one of the last things he did was he developed his tetrad, his four-part way of making sense of media and history and what their impacts are. Uh, And just to briefly go over that, uh, in case your listeners aren't familiar with it, then I'll show you how it works and even predicts Snapchat. Um, the, The first thing a new medium does is it amplifies or intensifies something. So let's just take radio as, a, as, as one of McLuhan's examples that he used, what radio does is it amplifies the voice across long distances communicated instantly. Uh, the second part of the Tetrad, the four-part model, is the new technology obsolesces or pushes out 
prominent, something which had previously been prominent. So you could say what radio does is it obsolesces print, uh, and people begin getting their news not from newspapers but from radio and so on. Uh, the third part of the Tetrad involves the new technology or medium retrieving something which had previously been important but was also obsolesced somewhere along the line. So clearly what radio does is it retrieves spoken communication which everything once writing was invented and then printing had to some extent uh, taken the place of. But radio retrieves that. And then pushed to its limits, uh, this is the fourth part of the Tetrad, McLuhan said the new technology reverses or flips into something which continues doing what the technology does but in a very different way. So radio, when pushed to its limits, uh, reverses into television which is basically the same as radio, except you now once again have the visual uh, element retrieved and married to the acoustic element. So it dawned on me when I first became aware of Snapchat that this is a, a fabulous reversal of photography. You know, and actually, given technologies can reverse or flip into many, many different things, it's multidimensional, but if photography begins by intensifying a permanent record, and what it does is it obsolesces impermanent records, like just memory or a reflection in a pool of water. Uh, and, um, and then photography reverses, retrieves any kind of you know, permanent uh, creation that was non-visual. Like you know, it, when photography is invented, it, it retrieves the importance of uh, painting. It makes painting much more important. But now here in, 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 in 2016 and for a few years before, Photography has suddenly flipped into something which is still photography, but actually quite the opposite, because with Snapchat, the, the photographic image doesn't last more than a few seconds. And so this is something that I think is, uh, is very useful, both in terms of helping us understand the uh, evolution of photography by applying McLuhan's uh, Tetrad. Okay, wow, that is uh, really interesting. So <laughs> let me ask you with this insight and with uh, the book, where do you think social media is headed? Do you, do you see, can you make any kind of projections? Yeah, well, I think that uh, what was crystal clear, if you look at not the, the, the site or the app, that is you get beyond Snapchat, Twitter, and so forth, uh, and you look at the device, that actually, or what you might call the hardware, through which the social medium is conveyed and via which people participate and interact, you've already seen a very profound development with the shrinkage of the hardware. So it begins, you know, with laptops, and then, you know, quickly with uh, the iPhone shrinks in size, iPads, uh, and it seems to me pretty clear that if we, we want to know where social media is headed, it's going to be a device that we have maybe implanted in our earlobe. It'll be a smart earring. Uh, we already now have, you know, the Google Watch. That's the same kind of thing. Um, 
Because let's face it, one of the most frustrating things in today's world is leaving your smartphone someplace. Uh, but if you have the smartphone, in effect, embedded in your ear, uh, you know, then you're much less likely to leave it someplace. And, you know, the, the usual uh, objection that's raised to this is, well, then we won't have any privacy. But obviously... Uh -oh. effortlessly turn it off when they're sleeping and when they don't want to have anyone knowing what they're, how they're communicating. You know, uh, okay, Paul, yeah, yeah, you know, I think, uh, okay, so that's a whole, you know, and I'm, I'm thinking, like, why are we looking down at our, this little tiny screen? You know, I'm, I, I like a bigger screen. I like the laptop better than my Especially little... Especially if your eyesight starts to go. ...than my little <laughs> de device. Um you know, so some kind of wearable, uh, you know, uh, like the Google Glass thing too would make sense. But we start to now we're start to starting to see where the line between biological organism, mm -hmm. i.e., human being, and the machine that line starts to blur. What do you what do you think about that? Well, you're completely right. That's exactly what's happening. And uh, uh, several things. I, I could easily imagine, in effect, corneal transplants that uh, people can have, and then the screens are just in, in their eyelids, and so, but they, it can project a big screen whenever they want, uh, and that'll solve the problem completely. Uh, but it's important to keep in mind that this has been going on for quite some time. Buckminster Fuller who first began writing in the 1930s, and he had a great book in 1936, I think it was first published, called Nine Chains to the Moon. Uh, but what was most interesting about the book was not about the moon, it was about just everyday technologies that uh, people were using. And Fuller back then mentioned almost offhandedly that from the point of view of the human psyche, the human intellect, the human soul, the human mind, whatever you want to call it, there's really no difference between eyes and eyeglasses once you put the eyeglasses on. So if you're wearing eyeglasses, you know, obviously we know they were artificially manufactured. They're not biological. They're a technological invention. They consist of glass and metal and plastic or whatever. N none of that is, uh, is biological. But once we put them on, they become part of our biological perception. Uh, and, and when they're working well, we're not even aware often that we're wearing them. So, you know, and how far back do eyeglasses go? I don't know, a couple hundred years. So this has actually been going on for quite some time. And I think we are going to see gradually the human body supplemented by technologies which basically enhance who we are. And again, you know, you find a lot of fear about this. You know, we don't want to become cyborgs. But again, uh, ultimately what we want in life is pleasure, success, the ability to do what we want to do. And these biotechnologies, when they work, help us do that. Yeah, in a sense, it's like what you're saying is that uh, it's just... We're already doing technology as an extension of our senses. And what you're saying is that the technology is just going to continue to extend our senses more and more. I think Sandra has a question. 
Okay, I was just—I was thinking, you know, is you had mentioned that it would enhance who we are, but I'm wondering. Thanks to you for putting me on the spot. Um, <laughs> but I'm wondering if that—if that would. This is a very intimidating conversation, I have to say. So I'm, I'm actually writing questions for Hugh to 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 ask. But um, uh, so I was wondering. You had mentioned enhancing um, us, and I'm thinking: is this really enhancing or suppressing us? Where technology is taking over. Yeah, well, see, that's what I was alluding to, the fact that you're not alone in those concerns. A lot of people feel that way. But uh, honestly, I've never understood where the suppression takes place. That's why, again, I'm using the example of eyeglasses. you know, if, uh, if, if I'll give you even a better example, because one could say that eyeglasses uh, are basically curing a defect that we might have with vision. So there's clear how they're helping. Mm-hmm. But so let mm-hmm. me give you another example, but it's just, which is in the same area. I, I go swimming usually about once a day, and I go swimming in a pool, and I swim about 30, 40 laps for about half an hour, 45 minutes, and I wear goggles when I swim okay. uh, because I need the, to, you know, I don't want the chlorine in my eyes. And also, I like looking underwater. You know, it's sort of fun when you're swimming underwater. Uh, uh, you know, depending upon what kind of you know swimming stroke you're doing, so th- this is a perfect example. Uh, the technology, the swimming goggles, how are they suppressing me? What they're doing is they are enhancing me because they're making my swimming experience, you know, more enjoyable, easier, more useful to me. And that I think is a good metaphor for for most technologies. Um, you, you know. What technology can you think of suppresses us? Let me just say one thing. Sure, in the hands of a bad person, anything can be used to suppress us, right? I mean, somebody can basically, uh, you know, pick up a hammer that basically, again, it was invented to help us to build something, to hammer in a nail, and somebody can threaten us with the hammer. So obviously that is suppressing us, but the problem there is not the hammer, it's it's the uh, violent person who's using the, the hammer. Well, and um, to your point, you know, I, I wear contacts, and okay. so I would be blind without them. Um, but I'm wearing those contacts, and I'm in control. I get to see better with those contacts. If I thought those contacts were a source to an Internet where somebody else has access to information, I wouldn't be wearing those contacts. And you're talking about media, which is all about hype and all about um, psychologically influencing people. And you're talking about control. And I think also, um, McLuhan, the, the whole interest in the Catholic religion and, and the connection between Catholicism and advertising is really about mind control. Media is mind control. So I'm just wondering if this is moving down towards, you know, more and more of that mind control where anytime you give up your um, uh, your your uh, trust into a major um, institution that is about making money and advertising it's no longer about wearing the goggles now. It's about the goggles having information and being able to tap into a lot more than just giving you eyesight. Well, advertisers certainly agree with you. That's why they spend uh, millions of dollars uh, on their ads. But but a dirty little secret about advertising are all the ad campaigns that failed. 
And, you know, to get back uh, to the political dimension again, Bernie Sanders here in the United States says, you know, these super PACs are destroying democracy because, you know, these candidates raise, raise millions and millions of dollars and they go out there and brainwash voters. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, you know, I think George, I think Jeb Bush would disagree with that. He had a huge super PAC, and the poor guy, uh, practically he and his wife were the only people who voted for him. And as a matter of fact, Bernie Sanders had no super PACs, but his message appealed to people. So I, I think to some extent it's a myth uh, that somehow exposure to media can influence us. And, you know, to, back to your example of contact lenses, if they were connected to the Internet, Again, as long as you were able to shut that off whenever you wanted to. But then you'd have um, to trust that what, you what could, right? I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. You'd have to trust that you could. I mean, with Facebook, um, uh, I, I have Facebook on my phone, and I wanted, um, and there was this whole new messaging. In order to message on Facebook, you had to download the Facebook app, and um, and uh, it, it. But in order to download that app, it wanted access to everything on your phone, including um, access to being able to, you know, to phone to actually call out from your phone. I'm not saying they would, but they would have had access to that. So I said, no, I'm, I prefer not to do that. That's fine. So I said, no. Then I found the app um, uploading on my phone without my permission. And then I canceled it and I found it up again and I canceled it. So that's the thing. You are trusting in these individuals. And I just don't think that humanity is at the um, awareness where we can trust in that. I think within that technology can, can, can be, you know, secret or super technology that can actually um, do things without your awareness where you do not have the control to turn that off. If you had the control, I'm 100% with you. I just don't think that we would have that control in spite of the fact that they would say it. I mean, the proof is there with the NSA, right? Well, uh, look, uh, what you just described, which I've, you know, never quite seen or heard of, uh, where you specifically said you didn't want this app and then you kept finding this app uh, on your phone, that's clearly an abuse of the system. And I think, you know, Facebook, uh, if they knew about that, I don't see how they would endorse it because they're claiming they're offering you an app. If you don't want the app, fine, you don't have to use it. The, the imposition of something, I, I agree with you on that. That is completely wrong. But one of the things about social media is that it, it provides a great uh, avenue and forum for denouncing these kinds of things. So mm -hmm. as a matter True. of fact, there True. was a site a couple of years ago, and I can't even remember the name of it, which is probably good because it faded away. It, it was uh, advertising itself as sort of a new, uh, you know, Facebook, better mm -hmm. than Facebook. But when you logged on to the site, it, it asked you to give them a list of all of your email contacts uh, and then it proceeded to email all those people inviting them to join the site and uh, mm -hmm. people as soon as they saw that that was going on they said this is ridiculous I don't want to give you my email and uh, my email contacts and so the site basically soon went on so you know again I'm uh, you know I, I I'm not explicitly familiar with what you're talking about, yeah. but clearly that's an abuse of the system. But that's why, again, I think we need to be clear about the technology versus 
the use of the technology. So, you know, newspapers, you know, you can't get a, a much more innocuous technology nowadays than newspapers, right? right? But what about when newspapers print things that are wrong? You know, so the New York Times, just about every other day, has something called errata, you know, errors that it lists at the bottom of its page. They make mistakes. So the, the point is, you can't believe everything you see in newspapers. Sometimes there are things that are just completely false that are printed in newspapers. Again, here in the United States, in the New York Times, there was a reporter by the name of Jason Blair, who about a dozen or more years ago, it was uncovered that the guy basically just made up stories. He was asked to go out and report a story, and he, just, he made up interviews, and eventually he was discovered. But he probably had a dozen stories published in which there was just complete nonsense there. So again, uh, I don't disagree with you at all that things can be abused, uh, but nonetheless, I'm in favor of their moving... Uh, forward with us because I think they provide a lot of benefits. Okay, Paul, we're, uh, this has been great to have this conversation. Uh, we got to get going here now, but I just want to give you, uh, we want, I guess people can get your book, uh, which is McLuhan in the Age of Social Media on uh, Amazon, I guess, right? Yeah, as a matter of fact, it's McLuhan in an Age of Social Media, it's a, and it's available only as a Kindle on Amazon and I update the book pretty frequently. So if somebody gets the, the book now, they'll find that I analyze something that Donald Trump said just about a week or two ago. Okay. So I try to keep it as current as possible. That's another great advantage of, of publishing uh, through mm -hmm. Kindle. Plus, of course, the great news is that if the book is controversial, the New World Order can get their hands on it and change it anytime they want. Right, Paul? Yeah. Not, not if I have anything to say about it, but hey, who knows? Of course, they would tell you they couldn't. They would tell you that absolutely you can say no. Yeah, hey, as long as they spell my name right. It's like the old WC. And field. give you the credit, right? Exactly, right. Yes. And the royalties. Paul, uh, the is, royalties, there, is there yes. a website you want to give out? Or And, and actually, I, I do want to give you a, a, a final. Maybe we didn't ask you a question you wanted. So any final thoughts you want to leave us with, and please give us your uh, website. Okay, well, the final thoughts actually do apply to Kindle. I think that's another great revolution, because for the first mm -hmm. time in history, an author can write a book and publish it the day that it's finished, the hour that it's finished, and get 70% of the royalties in contrast to getting it published by a traditional publisher, where you're lucky if you get 10 or 15% of the royalties. So most of my work has been traditionally published, but I think Kindle is, is an incredible boon to authors. As far as where you can find out more about me, probably my blog. It's Paul Levinson, P-A-U-L-L-E-V-I-N-S-O-N dot net. NET. I review television shows, you know, politics. I talk about McLuhan sometimes, new technologies, whatever comes into my head. Awesome. Okay, Paul, this has been Thank great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hey, Love to do this pleasure. again awesome. sometime, especially if you come on into Toronto. So I, thanks for doing this. I will. Take care of that. Take okay. care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, I guess that's it for the show. That was a long one. Well, it was uh, not that long. Told you not to get me started on that one. I know. We're going to have to remove that. <laughs> anyway, that's going to be where we edit it. We're going to have to report you to the New World Order. <laughs> <laughs> the gig is up on that channel, okay, on Liquid Lunch. Conspiracy theorists are going to be taken. <laughs> yep, yep.
because they're causing all that trouble. So you know that noise that he heard? That was actually the spaceship. That's right. That's that's what it was all about. Speaking of which, let's go. <laughs> Time to go back in our spaceship. We were going to get that tour of the spaceship. Okay, that's it for Liquid Lunch. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time right here on that channel.